This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In her new book, The Sun Shot Climbs Slow, Justice in the Age of Imperial America, our guest today, Verna Paris, examines the story and individuals behind America's refusal to acknowledge international law and an inquiry into the urgent role of international criminal justice. Paris is the winner of 10 national and international writing awards, including a gold medal from the National Magazine Awards Foundation. She is the author of seven books of literary nonfiction, including The End of Days, A Story of Tolerance, Tyranny, and the Expulsion of the Jews from Spain, which won the 1996 Canadian Jewish Book Award for History. Verna Paris, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's nice to have you with us. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. It's a bit snowy in Toronto, but aside from that, everything's fine. Oh, very good. So so you get out into it? You get out into the cold? <laughs> well, the cold in April is something we can manage. It's yeah. the cold in February we worry about. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Now, now what, what inspired you to write this book, The Sun Climbs Slow? I was inspired to write this book for a number of reasons. Um, Firstly, after 9-11, I was greatly disturbed uh, to discover, as other people did, of course, that people were being arrested and taken to a place we learned was called Guantanamo Bay, and that they did not have the sorts of due process rights that the world has simply come to expect. So we thought that we we'd moved on from a time when people were denied those rights. So that was the first reason that I was compelled to write it. The second is that I spent a career writing about subjects of this nature related. Um, I've written about historical memory, for example, in a number of places in the world, particularly after times of crisis, and um, the role of the role that justice can play in reconciling these memories. And so to write this book, The Sun Climbs Slow, seemed like a natural evolution from my former work. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get going any further into it, uh, how did you choose the title? <laughs> um, the title comes from a, uh, a Victorian poem by uh, the author uh, Arthur Hugh Clough called Say Not the Struggle Not Availeth. Uh, which some people may have studied when they were in school. I did. Uh-huh. And um, it struck me that that title was um, Suggested Hope, which is something that I believe is possible in terms of these new courts. Uh, but it also had a political resonance because uh, Winston Churchill used it in an address to the British people in 1941 when the war was going very badly and the Americans had just entered the fray um, with an attempt to uh, protect supply ships. So it, it was a kind of pain to um, to thank the Americans for coming into the war and... Uh, and in that sense, I thought it was also appropriate. Now, one thing the Americans didn't come into was the uh, International Criminal Court when it was established. Can you give us a little bit of uh, background history about the court and how it, it came to be? 
Well, you know, I uh, people talk about the court today. It's very much in the news, as it should be, because of the uh, indictment of, uh, of President Bashir of Sudan. Uh-huh. But the idea for such a court, that is a a permanent, independent court in the world that would try crimes, the greatest crimes that have ever been uh, codified. We're talking genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes. The idea for such a thing has been around for more than 2,000 years. And because I'm interested in history and historical context, I've actually started my book with a look at the first written discussions which took place in ancient Greece, about the nature of justice, about how we can live in a world where such crimes, should they occur, because they have, let's face it, they have always occurred, how they might be punished so that uh, human beings could live in peace, so that impunity for such crimes would would no longer exist. But basically, in terms of the court as we know it today, its history begins at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, after the First World War. Uh, the idea for such a court to, uh, where the Germans and the Turks might be tried never went anywhere, because this has always been a greatly political and controversial subject. But it came, it, it reemerged later, after the Cold War with the other international courts, the so-called ad hoc courts for Yugoslavia and for Rwanda. And once they were set up, there was really no opportunity to say that there couldn't be a similar kind of court um, and one that was permanent. Now, it's a very, it's a complex story, and I've tried to make it simple here, but it's, it's a marvelous story and one that is very, very little known, and I've written the book in order that the greater public understand the origins of these ideas and how this came to be in our time. Uh, we're speaking with Erna Paris. The book is The Sun Climbs Slow, uh, The International Criminal Court and the Struggle for Justice. Now, um, how does the trial at, uh, trials of Nuremberg um, fit into the framework of what we're discussing? Trials of Nuremberg are, uh, were, are critical. At the end of the Second World War, the Allies decided that instead of lining up the Nazis against the wall and shooting them, they would actually use justice um, to, to, to punish them or, and to investigate what actually did happen for the record. We all, I think, have memories of the, the, the iconic pictures of the Nazis in that famous courtroom. The most important thing that came out of that court was the creation of new law, codified law, something called crimes against humanity. As I was suggesting before, human beings have always known what crimes against humanity were. Uh, they are the massive murder, atrocity, deportations of populations, etc., uh, done on a massive scale and and in a planned way. But they've never been been codified. They've never been written into law, and they were on that occasion. And the uh, top Nazi leaders, not Hitler, but the many of the top Nazi leaders, were convicted. What happened after Nuremberg is that this body of law remained on the books, even though during the Cold War there was no chance of actually using it. We all talked about never again, but this 
this kind of thinking just simply wasn't uh, it wasn't wasn't possible to move ahead. But when the Cold War ended and these major uh, conflicts, civil wars, reemerged in the world, the international community didn't really know what to do. And when it established the ad hoc courts for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, it was using the law that had been developed at Nuremberg. Some people think Nuremberg was the most important event of the 20th century because it established this law that we are now using to bring a new era of accountability into the world. So, in other words, a recognition of an international code of justice as opposed to a, a sovereign nation deciding what is and isn't uh, isn't uh, ju- qualifies as a crime. That be the that be the major yes. distinction. That's right. The the creation of new international criminal law that supersedes the the laws of na- of of uh, nations, if you wish. In other words, uh, genocide is considered to be an international crime. Crimes against humanity are international crimes. War crimes are are international in scope. Now, many countries, including the United States, have domesticated many of these laws. Uh, The United States has the American war crimes legislation, which is a domestication of of the international law. Can, uh, one one question, also a, a sort of a background question as well, um, the Geneva Conventions. How does that that sort of pre obviously that predates Nuremberg, but how did that come to pass, and what what was it that was was that the basis of much of uh, the prosecution at the Nuremberg trials? Well, the the, the Geneva Conventions have been an ongoing uh, work in progress since. Um, uh, for a hundred years, there are many. There are different uh, conventions, and the um, the last ones, which are the protection of uh, prisoners and of civilians, were added uh, after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. But yes, the Geneva Conventions concern war crimes, and I have an entire section in my book dealing with how war crimes were actually developed by the international community. It's quite amusing, actually, because the the politics of bringing countries that, say, had just been warring with each other to a conference to discuss how they might limit their own aggression. Well, you can imagine that uh, many of them, particularly the most powerful, weren't in the least interested in doing so. And but you know there were there were ways and means uh, where they simply had to agree. As a matter of fact, the first um, really important laws in terms of war crimes came uh, from the United States at the time of the the Civil War, when, as you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, American soldiers were uh, were dying. And a professor at the at, at New York University, I think, uh, devised. A, um, uh, a series of uh, laws which he hoped would be adopted internationally uh, to protect soldiers and to define exactly what, what was and was not a crime during warfare. This was the beginning. And, in fact, these laws were accepted, and they were accepted by um, President Lincoln simultaneously. We're speaking with Erna Paris. The book is The Sun Climbs Slow. Now, I, I, my understanding that at Nuremberg, many of the uh, German officers who were on trial 
were able to escape uh, prosecution, were, were found, uh, I don't know, not guilty may not be the exact uh, terminology that was used, if they could demonstrate that the crimes that they were charged with were in fact the same actions that were being carried out by the Allies, that their their defense was uh, that, and my understanding is the Nuremberg uh, indictments were very carefully crafted to essentially isolate German activity separately than that of the activities of the Allies. In other words, the uh, the carpet bombing of civil of, of major cities was was taken off the table because that was an activity that was undertaken by the Allies and as much as it was by the Germans. So that there were there are some sort of, as you were describing earlier, sort of the powerful being uh, being able to, and the victors in some way, being able to craft uh, uh, um, indictments that uh, essentially didn't also pull them in to, into that uh, system. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Not only were the war crimes you've been describing and others, such as the uh, nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the uh, the bombing, the carpet bombing of Dresden, Hamburg, and so on. Not only were they, they, they weren't actually taken off the table, they were never put on the table. Mm-hmm. That there, there is no question, and this is one of the great criticisms of Nuremberg, that um, it was Victor's justice. Nuremberg was Victor's justice. It but it was, was a step forward. It, that, exactly. It, it was the, 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 the victors trying the victims... But when I but the the important thing there is that does not mean there was no justice done. Mm-hmm. There was a great deal of justice done at Nuremberg, but it was partial. There's no question. Uh, how do you feel that the uh, International Criminal Court is faring today? You know, do you do you feel like the Obama administration? I'm moving way up now, but. Do you feel like we're, we're moving forward, that we're going to have uh, uh, some activity with the United States within the court? Well, let, let me answer your first question um, uh, and say that I, I think the court's doing well. Um, I think that, the, uh, that over the years um, it has demonstrated that the initial concerns that were voiced by the Bush administration that American soldiers would be targeted in the field, that the the prosecutor was unchecked, and and so on and so forth. That these have proven um, not to be the case. The court ha- uh, has been and is being well run, and uh, so these these um, problems seem to have dropped away for the moment. Um, in terms of whether the United States will join. I think that is is an is an unknown. President Obama is reconsidering joining the court. There is a lot of public public opinion support in the United States for the U.S. joining this court. The last poll that I saw was the um, Chicago Council for Foreign Relations the last September. Uh, no, I'm sorry, last sometime late in uh, in '08. And in which 66% of Americans polled wanted uh, the U.S. to join the court. Now, there are certain issues, and if it was ever taken to Congress, they would certainly be raised, particularly by Republicans. And that is the central problem and concern about national sovereignty. And, you know, the, the International Criminal Court is a transnational court. It reflects the new, the new globalism, glo- the globalization of law. 
if you wish, because we we are in a different world than we were in the 20th century. And although the nation state is still the most important actor, um, the the kind of uh, absolutism that's been attached to national sovereignty has loosened up, has lessened, and international justice is one element of that. So they think that there is a legitimate debate that uh, will take place about the the question of national sovereignty. On the other on the other side, there's a new consensus in the world that we must no longer allow the impunity of great leaders to stand as it has historically, that accountability is important, and that the International Criminal Court, for example, is and should be seen as a an additional tool for peace in the world, an alternative to to war through the use of condemnation and justice. I, I just want to ask a couple of uh, sort of basic questions, sort of the nuts and bolts of it. The International mm-hmm. Criminal Court is is where? It is located in the Hague. In the Hague. Okay. When they say the Hague, and I assume that's what they were ta- when they're talking about that. Okay. And it is comprised of of a body of people of what international jurists, people from around the world who are involved, who are experts in criminal justice or international... Oh, well, uh, yes, it is, of course. But uh, the International Criminal Court is actually made up of member states who have signed on to it. And uh, right now, um, more than half the countries in the world, most of the democracies in the world, uh, excluding the U.S., uh, have signed on to the court. So it is, it is independent. It's run by its member states. Its, its officials, its judges, its prosecutor and chief are elected by its member states. It is funded by them. And so they have complete control of its uh, activities. If they don't like the prosecutor, for example, they can, you know, with, with due reason, uh, uh, fire him. Um, so they are, they are in control. It is independent of the United Nations. Okay. Uh, but um, works in in concert with the UN. Now, when they issue an indictment, as they have uh, with Bashir, president of Sudan, what is the mechanism by which they can bring him to the docket? What what do they have? Do they have a police force? Is there some international enforcement agency that will in these within these member states that will assist in bringing someone to the Hague? Well, you've just touched on what is the Achilles heel of uh, of all the new international courts. They do not have a police force. There's no such thing. Um, The international community has never agreed that there would be such a thing as an international police force, although it might come in the future. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, the ICC and all the courts, and I'm talking about, you know, the ones for former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, there are a number of these courts um, uh, that are not permanent, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, they they all depend on uh, the international community and in the case of the ICC, its member states to arrest indicted people. And I think that this is a serious issue. So when a when a leader, let's say uh, Bashir, goes to another country, it, it's it's possible that he could be arrested by, it, assuming it's a member state, arrested or at least detained, and then through some kind of arrangement being brought to justice at the at the Hague. Is that I mean there's a sort of a a hope 
that that will happen in, with well, these members? It is, it's supposed to be more than a hope because okay. all the countries that are member states are actually obliged by the Rome. The Rome Statute is the is the the treaty that underlies the court. You know, that has all its rules, and they are obliged by the uh, by their own statute to arrest any indicted person who either lives on their property, who who's citizen that is, or is citizen of a country that is not a member, but uh, where the if the crime has taken place on their on their territory. Now, the only other way that a person can get to The Hague is through a referral um, from the Security Council. Mm -hmm. And that happened in the case of Sudan in 2005 when the United Nations referred the investigation of Bashir to the ICC. You know, there's this unspoken question right now, at least for me. Yeah. Uh, when when can we try... Uh, the Bush administration officials within the Bush administration officials within the Bush administration, as they're trying to do in Spain, uh, in an international criminal court. What what would that take? Can can I just interject because I know this is a part another part of this question. You stated it earlier, so people understand. The United States has refused to be a signatory to uh, the international uh, criminal court. Therefore, they are not subject to the jurisdiction of the international court. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just wanted to throw that in there, and I want but, to make but sure. But once they sign on, uh, are is it uh, open season? Uh, okay, let's let's just say that the United States d did initially sign on. President Clinton signed on. George W. Bush unsigned yeah. the treaty, so that's just for the record. Um, and the, the and United the, I'm yeah. sorry, and the Bush administration was extremely not just that they withdrew their their signature; they were extremely hostile. To the idea of the extremely hostile, and in fact, I've just I've devoted a great part of my book to talking about what happened in the United States, uh, the efforts made by the Bush administration, particularly John Bolton, yes. who actually killed the court. It's a very interesting story, and it's a really important story that I think that um, Americans, in particular, should um, you know will will want to know because it will help understand. Where that, uh, where the Bush administration was coming from in terms of its attitudes, its international attitudes, because there is nothing more central to multilateralism uh, or internationalism than the than the ICC, the International Criminal Court. It's a kind of bellwether of where a country stands. Can so can I just I just want to inject just to give you some idea of the level of hostility coming from the Bush administration and from John Bolton as well, is that the United States actually passed a law which, which in, empowered the United States military to extract any American that would be brought to the International Criminal Court. They actually have the authority, they've given the authority to the U.S. military to, make, to essentially pull them you know, by force out of uh, a, that, that that was called the Hague Invasion Act. Well, it was called that by uh, by people who were actually uh, a little bit uh, so, who were making fun of it a little. Uh, bit. I just I just wanted yeah. to make sure people understand. We actually have have a, a law on the books that, yes. that 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 tells our military to essentially perform a military operation to get somebody out of the criminal court system, international criminal court. That's correct. And I would also add that the United States passed. Um, a series of laws that denied help, uh, military uh, infrastructure, and economic help 
to uh, any country in the world that actually signed on to the ICC. The object was to sign a bilateral immunity agreement that neither country, the United States or the country it was signing with, would ever send any one of its members to uh, the International Criminal Court. Now, I should say that um, these laws are being looked at at the moment by the Obama administration, and I think that we can expect that they will be amended in many ways. This is already happening. We're talking about the, as you raised, the level of hostility yeah. that the Bush administration held towards the court. Uh, Erna Paris, I can't let you get away with two kind of two related questions. You see the international, by the way, the book is The Sun Climbs Slow, the International Criminal Court and the, and the Struggle for Justice. Do you see any move towards regulating two uh, important areas? One is the, uh, the sort of the Blackwater, the uh, mercenary armies that are, are being sort of put together uh, by, these, by the United States and other countries uh, being addressed there. And also the idea of drones, the drone warfare that's going on in Pakistan and around the world, and other countries are developing these drones. Do you see any attempt to try and address these within the context of the International Criminal Court? No, I don't think so, because it's important to understand that the crimes that the ICC is dealing with are the ones that I mentioned earlier, crimes against massive, grave crimes. The prosecutor is is compelled to uh, to follow the terms of the of the Rome Statue. In other words, the crimes must be massive, planned in terms of being atrocities, and uh, and they must be of of extreme gravity. And that has a legal definition. So I think that the things that you're describing would not quite fit into that category. Well, can I point out that the, because of the drone war, the drones that are being um, flown into Pakistan, there are reports that over a million people have fled the area. Doesn't that begin to approach a, a level of a, of a mass of a, of a crime? Well, uh, yes, it certainly would. Uh, it, in, in some sense, but it, I don't believe that it would uh, meet the threshold of, uh, of what we've just been been talking about. I'd just like to add one thing before we uh, come to the end of our time, and that is that in some sense the International Criminal Court is a court of last resort. Mm-hmm. It has a funny-sounding uh, clause called complementarity, which says that it will only begin investigating a case or bring an indictment if the country uh, where the suspected perpetrator has citizenship refuses to try that person or is structurally incapable of doing so. So that any country who brings its own person to, to trial, for example, um, <clears throat> would, would never, that, that person would never see the inside of the ICC. Mm. That's why there's a tremendous incentive on countries, democracies, all countries, to develop uh, due process court systems that, and, and the political will to try their own people. Well, Erna, Erna Paris, this is a fascinating book. It's a fascinating subject and one that will become more increasingly more important uh, as we move forward uh, in an international age that we are in. Uh, the book is The Sun Climbs Slow, The International Criminal Court and the Struggle for Justice. Thank you for joining us here on Weekly Signals. Thank you very much for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. 
And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.